and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords, and this is the 433rd show of ROI. Our guest for today's show is Dr. Richie Robertson, Emeritus Fellow and former Taylor Professor of Germanic Language and Literature at Queen's College, Oxford, who's going to be talking to us about the Enlightenment, the Pursuit of Happiness, 1680 to 1790. The history buff for today's show are Rick Sweet and Terry Toppler. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Zapsapital, and our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker. This is the opening segment of our show, called Farouk Dinarin, and we want to welcome our guest, Richie Robertson, to the radio show. Hi, Richie. Hello. So we call this Farouk Dinarin because it deals with a, uh, a large subject rather than a local subject, and this is a very large subject. Um, I uh, had a chance to look at your book, uh, and it's 800-plus pages, so <laughs> that qualifies as a large subject. So uh, why don't we start off with, with some basics. Um, what does the Enlightenment mean? I'll say, I'll say two things. First of all, a movement among intellectuals of a, of a very diverse kind across um, Europe and North America um, which people ask new questions about the world. They looked at um, the, the world around them and asked the question being raised by natural science. They questioned the authority of the churches and instead um, 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 gave credit to empirical research and historical study. That's one thing. But the other is something even larger. A shift in the outlook, the mentality, the way of thinking that affected a very la a large swathe of the population. People became less disposed to believe in the, in, the reality, in the reality of the supernatural and even in the authority of the churches. And more, more inclined towards skepticism, more interested in the material world, and also, this is a very important part of the Enlightenment, um, more, more inclined to feel sympathy and fellow feeling with other people. And this, this growth of sympathy, um, in part, lies behind the movement for the abolition of slavery, and many charitable initiatives taken in the 18th century. The problem which I had in writing about the Enlightenment, which I don't claim to have solved, is how these two things, the intellectual movement and the shift of outlook among a wider population, how the two are connected. How, what was the case that um, intellectual speculation somehow trickled down to a wider public? Or was there a growing wave of curiosity and skepticism with intellectuals simply riding? That's an open question. But whatever happened, it was it was momentous, and we're still living in its aftermath. All right. Uh, so, is there a an identifiable starting? 
place or individuals? You know, is this a, a movement that sort of started with with a a small group in a in a particular place and then spread over Europe, or is it something that sort of happened organically across the continent uh, and then made its way uh, here to uh, to North America? I can mention two defining events that happened in the 1680s. The first was the publication in 1687 of Isaac Newton's Principia Mathematica, which um, explained the construction of the universe by putting forward the theory of gravity. The Principia are a work of very difficult mathematics, but um, Newton found plenty of expositors, among them Voltaire, who in France wrote an introduction to Newton. Um, secondly, in, 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 in Britain, the revolution of 1688, when James II, who wanted to convert the country to Catholicism, was expelled and replaced by the Dutch Protestant king, um, William III. And that was a blow against the authority of, 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 of kings and a, a way of affirming that um, the public subjects had a, had a right to see who should rule them. All right. We have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. The KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station. Submit a public service announcement, catch up on news about KALA, and listening to any of our three stations, 885-1061 or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords, and this is the second segment of the show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Richie Robertson, Emeritus Fellow and former Taylor Professor of Germanic Language and Literature at Queen's College, Oxford. And we're talking about the Enlightenment, the pursuit of happiness, 1680 to 1790. Our history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Terry Toppler. Rick, why don't you start us off? Thank you, Jay. Uh, Richie, you uh, answered... Uh uh, Jay's initial question of what started it, you have an end date of 1790. What ended it? I chose 1790 as the end date because of the, of the French Revolution. Ah. Many people think that um, the Enlightenment was somehow moving towards the French Revolution, but that, I think, is a, is a complete mistake. The French Revolution was a political event. It wasn't brought about by intellectuals. It resulted from the impossible difficulties of the French economy and the, the refusal of the nobles and the church to renounce any of their privileges. Something had to give. 
the philosophers of the Enlightenment, this includes Voltaire and the philosophe of Paris, generally believed that political reform had to come from above. They admired the enlightened monarchs, the enlightened despots, were sometimes called, <laughs> like Frederick the Great in Prussia, Catherine the Great in Russia, who wanted to benefit the subjects by top-down reforms. The Enlightenment thinkers didn't have much time for what was called um, democracy. They used the word democracy to mean the direct <clears throat> democracy of the ancient Athens, and you could see from history that direct democracy tended to end in anarchy, and anarchy in the arrival of an authoritarian leader. And, in fact, um, the French Revolution led to the arrival of Napoleon and to the establishment of the empire. So... <clears throat> okay. Um, Terry, do you have a question? Yes, I do. Uh, Richie, in the very beginning of your book, you talk about the witch craze, how that occurred during the pre-Enlightenment period between 1560 Mm -hmm. and the late 1600s. So my question has to do, how did that influence what happened in Salem in 1692, and how did that open up the Enlightenment period? Thank you. That's very much the point, because it was so easy to see how or why people stopped believing in witchcraft. The Salem episode is a very, very late um, um, outlier of the witch craze. Um, taking place in a, in a remote and relatively isolated um, 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 uh, community. Um, belief and disbelief in, in witches is resemble what I was talking about earlier. This is a shift in the popular outlook which is difficult to account for, which, and which wasn't caused by the Enlightenment, but which helped to make the Enlightenment possible. That's why writing the history of the Enlightenment is, is so difficult. Um, <clears throat> Richie, I'm, I'm interested to kind of follow up on that. Um, it it sure. seems to me that you, that you spend a, a fair bit of time talking about the... Um, the the way that religion had kind of run amok uh, before the Enlightenment. Um, we have the Thirty Years' War. We have a Hundred Years' War. Um, we have English civil wars taking place, which were very much religiously driven, um, and and the atrocities that had happened there. So, can you talk a little bit for the for the non intellectual, for the average person? How did all of that? sort of help change a mindset away from sort of, you know, that the, the, I don't want to use the word blind, but certainly the, the strong adherence to, uh, religious tenets and, um, particularly to religious leadership. Um, how did the average, yeah. Something very important. Yes. People look back, people look back with horror on the religious wars of the early modern period. The French wars of religion in the late in the 16th century, the English Civil War, and above all, the Thirty Years' War in Germany, which destroyed one-third of the population of Germany. They said, in effect, never again. 
other religions. We think which adherents of different religions could live together without killing each other. I didn't mean that they actually thought toleration a good thing in itself. It, it was, for many people, a necessary evil. But of course, once you start um, encouraging the coexistence of different religions, you find out more about them, you find out what different varieties of Christianity have in common, and you become skeptical that your own version of Christianity, be it Anglicanism, Calvinism, even Roman Catholicism, has all the answers. Rick, <clears throat> I was interested in the uh, Richie's comment about you know, uh, religion figured out you didn't have to kill each other. Well, we still seem to be doing a little of that in the 20, yeah, from time to time. 21st century. Yeah. Uh, just curious, since we're talking about what I look at as uh, loss of power and authority of, of uh, the religious establishment, <clears throat> in this 110-year period, what kind of efforts did the church uh, go through to try to regain their their preeminence in the uh, the structure of uh, people's lives? I wouldn't um, approach it quite in that way, but rather, um, something which is often overlooked is that many clerics, many churchmen, sympathized with the Enlightenment yeah. and wanted to transfer the emphasis in the reversal of Christianity away from the supernatural, from suppose miracles, etc., um, and towards um, um, moral behavior. And that includes um, at least two enlightened popes, Benedict, Benedict XIV in the mid-18th century, um, who was very much against so-called miracles, and even had many supposed relics destroyed, and his successor, um, um, Clement VII, I may not have got the, the number quite right, who disbanded the, the Jesuits. Um, most Enlightenment thinkers were not atheists, but there were only very few, such as Hume and Diderot, who we can reasonably be sure were atheists. Far more, including Voltaire, were deists. They believed in God, they believed that God the author of morality and the creator of the world, but they thought that um, after creating the world, God had withdrawn and left the world to operate by itself, according to laws, which could be expressed in mathematical terms and had been discovered by, 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 by Newton. So what matters in religion, in the opinion of most enlighteners, was not um, dogma, not theological arguments, it nearly led to futile conflict, but not morality. Hmm. Okay, Terry, do you have a question? Yes. Uh, Richie, did you write your book with a particular kind of audience or reader in mind? And also, what surprised you the most in your research on this topic? Okay. I wrote the book for a general interested audience, emphatically not for not for fellow academics. Um, and I wrote in the belief that everything can be explained in simple and unpretentious language without, without any loss 
of intellectual integrity. Well, that's what surprised me most. Um, hmm. I think um, something I've already mentioned um, that although enlightenment realized that monarchy is in many ways an absurd institution, it hardly makes sense to pass your country on to your son, who may have no qualification for ruling it. Nevertheless, it's also the, the least bad form of government, and they had no confidence whatever in, in popular participation. At most, um, enlightenment accepted um, representative, representative democracy of the kind enshrined in the American Constitution. But um, ruled rule by, um, um, popu by popular assembly, but by a mere majority, the thought and tyranny was meant suppressing the beliefs of, of the minority. And representative government, on the other hand, people who represent different points of view argue about and come to a practical compromise. Um, to, and I'd also say that um, in the 18th century, republics were actually very rare and unusual, and on the whole they looked, looked on as strange survivals in the past. The Dutch Republic was in decline. The Republic of Venice was a very unattractive model. Sweden experimented with the Republic in all but name, and that went very badly. Um, so nobody could have foreseen that um, the French Revolution would create a republic, which, although short-lived, would nevertheless provide a kind of template for future systems of government throughout Europe and beyond. Now, I'll just add briefly that I tried my book to um, get back into the assumptions of the past of the 18th century and not foist 20th and 21st century assumptions onto the past, but to understand how different the 18th century was from the times in which we live. Richie, um, I have a question along those lines then, uh, thinking more philosophically than, than politically. Um, I'm interested in how the Enlightenment is continuing to influence our world, and, and I, I have two sort of questions to, along those lines. The first one um, is purely an intellectual idea. Out of the Enlightenment, we get things like determinism and materialism, the idea that things can be understood uh, and that you know what we need to consider real is that which is identifiable in front of us has some physical definition can be figured out mathematically or whatever um, that certainly drives the development of science and allows for a scientific explosion in the 1800s um, and is still carrying on uh, how do you see the, the, the effects that the positive effects are probably pretty easy do you see any negative effects of those ideas operating in today's world I see, I see, materialism is one philosophical approach which in the Enlightenment contended with others. Um, determinism is a very puzzling philosophical issue, and I think um, many people would have agreed.
agreed with Samuel Johnson, who said, Sir, we know our will, our will is free, and there's an end of it. Um, I think, therefore, to, to identify the Enlightenment wholesale with materialism and determinism, um, and to see in it an anticipation of Karl Marx, is a best, a best one-sided. Um, however, um, you ask a very fair question about the ambition to make, to make all of reality ultimately knowable. Some people don't like that, that idea. They think it's better if the world contains some mystery. Well, it's going to be a very long time before astronomers and and, and the cosmologists solve all the questions on their, on their agenda. So I don't think we need to worry about the world becoming... Um, 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 becoming over, over simple and, and too easily explained. Um, I, thought, uh, I can see this little problem that for, for, for many people it's important that certain aspects of reality should be sacred and set apart. And emotionally I very much sympathize with that. Do we really want a world without the sacred, a world in which there is nothing sacred? Um, personally, um, I wouldn't mind, but I do understand the deep um, um, objection that some people feel towards such a prospect. Okay, and, and so I'm going to ask a follow-up then. Uh, it, it has been noted by several commentaries, reviews that I read of your book that that there's a sense here in the 21st century that we are backsliding a bit to our pre-enlightenment roots. Um, we are <laughs> we're we're sort of becoming more spiritualized, more um, I don't know what else you could call it, uh, more more intolerant, less willing to to empathize, as you mentioned earlier, with our fellow man. Um, do you also see that? Do you agree with those commentaries, or, or do you think that they maybe are overstating things a bit? Well, there's, unfortunately, a large amount of truth in these commentaries. We see evidence of intolerance all around us, although we tend to find it not so much in religion as, as in as in gender politics. Let me just leave, leave that one hanging. We also find an extraordinary amount of, of credulity bringing us to believe in fake news. Um, and that I, think, that, I think, goes back to a failure of education. Adam Smith um, says in, in somewhere in The Wealth of Nations that um, popular education ought to include a course in philosophy, which would be a, a qualification for any um, intellectual employment, and I, th I think he is dead right. It is, for example, very disturbing to know that the discoveries of natural science concerning, for example, the, the, the age of the universe, the age of the earth, um, and evolution, etc., are simply rejected out of hand by quite a large proportion of the population of some countries. That has to be combated 
But that, but that combat is um, easier said than done. <laughs> um, so, Richie, it is customary that we give our guests the last word on our show. So why do you think knowing about enlightenment attitudes toward happiness or anything else for that matter is relevant in today's world? I think that happiness is possible to be difficult. But when the enlightenment talks of happiness, it doesn't mean so much the um, feelings of the individual as the, the framework of human life. We can have a just social order. We can have um, um, we can have goods distributed in such a way that nobody starves, and we can escape from religious and other forms of intolerance. And these are these are these are perfectly feasible ideals which we ought to hold on to and pursue. All right. Um, since we have about two minutes, I'm going to let my uh, history buffs jump in here, too. If you can manage one-minute answers, Rick and Terry, and we'll let, and we'll let Rick start. Uh, what do you think about um, the relevance of the Enlightenment attitudes that we've been talking about? I'll, lose, I'll use no adjectives. <laughs> I, I, uh, I agree with the, the backslidingness. I, I look at, at what what evolved in that 120 years and what it created up to the 21st century. And then all of a sudden, and you and I and all our friends have talked for hours and hours, what happened? Why do we not respect science? Why do we not respect each other? And so I think this is a hugely relevant issue. Terry. Yes, I, I will piggyback on that response with of Rick's because uh, I too, I wonder if we are sliding backwards um, and Perhaps it's our understanding that maybe happiness is not possible. So I'd like to believe that uh, we could escape from intolerance and that we could have a just social order. But I, I don't know in this 21st century where we're at today if that is possible. All right. Well, and, and I'm going to add in my 30-second two-cents worth. Um, I really liked the way you talked to defined happiness in enlightenment terms as creating a, a uh, an atmosphere or a culture in which uh, people can pursue um, their humanness in, in a way that, that allows for success. And I like that definition a lot better than the narcissistic, endless pursuit of quote-unquote happiness that we seem to be caught in here in the 21st century where happiness really is my what's what what i want the fulfillment of my wants uh they're not needs they're just wants and um and sort of at the expense of all other folk um you know my needs are in you know exponentially greater than everyone else's and i think if we could just go back to that enlightenment concept of happiness we might find that a number of other social ills got corrected in the process at any rate when we come back we're going to wrap things up so please stay tuned this is roi on kala st ambrose university 106.1 fm You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant, 
This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes the 433rd show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapp Zappital. My name is Jay Swords, and we would like to thank our guest, Dr. Richie Robertson, Emeritus Fellow and former Taylor Professor of Germanic Language and Literature at Queen's College, Oxford, who talked with us about the Enlightenment, the Pursuit of Happiness, 1680 to 1790. The history bus for today's show were Rick Sweet and Terry Toppler. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all of our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotza Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night.